Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 11 through 12. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And before we read the text, let us come before the Lord and pray for the reading and the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, You are gracious beyond measure. And it's very easy for us to not keep that in in view. That you have been so gracious to us, Lord, it's almost as if we deserve it, but we, we don't. What we deserve is your judgment and your wrath. But by your grace, you have sought to give us life. You have sought to give us the goodness of family. You have given us the goodness of relationships. But most importantly, you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, who lived the life that we could not live, securing for us a righteousness that is not of us, but of you. And then he died in our place, securing for us an atonement, Lord, that makes us right before you. And that we can have a relationship with you, not because of anything we have done, but simply by faith, what Christ has done. Father, your grace is overwhelming. Let us then live for you. Let us be sold out for you. We thank you for that. We give you the praise and the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is the word of the Lord. The late R.C. Sproul once wrote, Everyone who follows Christ makes the good confession of faith when he joins a church body. And Paul's exhortation to Timothy to remember the confession he made before other witnesses is an allusion to the importance of fellow witnesses to encourage us in the faith. All of us have an important part to play in cheering on the discouraged Christians around us, and God will use our encouragement to help others to grow to maturity. So now we're nearing the end of the first letter to Timothy. This is the 21st uh, installment, which means we've been in this letter for nearly half a a year. Paul begins to, to give Timothy a personal exhortation and to encourage Timothy. Because if you remember, the young pastor was left in the city of Ephesus with an incredibly difficult task. He was left there by Paul to basically take over leadership of this church in that city, a church that once had been faithful, a church that Paul himself had planted, but had fallen prey to the false teachers and their false doctrines. And so it was a church now that was in deep trouble. And Paul left Timothy there to set the church back on its theological foundation. And Paul tells Timothy exactly how to do this. He says to Timothy with authority, he needs to put an end to all the false teaching in the church and to discipline the false teachers. He then was to shore up the leadership in the church and make sure that all the elders and even the deacons themselves met the the biblical qualification set forth for their office. And then he was to correct a number of behavioral issues in the church and discipline lovingly the members of the church who were in error and in in sin. In fact, in Paul in fact, Paul in chapter 3 of this letter tells us the purpose of the letter. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar 
and buttress of the truth. Timothy is, is to take over leadership of the church and he's to set the church back on track. And, 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 and because of that, right, it was a difficult task, but he's doing this because the church belongs to God. This is the thing that we must always remember. A lot of people have their own ideas of what church is supposed to be like. Our ideas are irrelevant. It is what God believes about the church is true. The church belongs to him. It is his church and it is to be and to do what God has ordained for it to be and to do. And the church is the God-ordained instrument that he is using to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to a dying world. It is also the instrument that he's using to defend the foundational orthodox doctrines of the Christian faith so that the truth itself endures along with the church until Christ comes home. Because the local church is the God-ordained hope of the world. Let us not forget this very simple but profound truth. The church, the local gathering of God's people is the God-ordained hope for the world because it is it that defends and declares the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Timothy is to take this difficult task of bringing reformation to this wayward church, a task that's going to require all of his strength, a task that is going to require all of his efforts and all of his energy and all of his hope and all of his dependence upon God and Christ and their grace to accomplish this task. If there's one thing to not lose sight of, it's that. That Timothy is not just a guy that just shows up at a church and then corrects a few things. This is a task that's bigger than Timothy. It's a task that's going to require supernatural help. It's a task that's going to require everything of him. This is the greatest task that Timothy has ever encountered in his ministry and life so far. To take this once faithful church that who has allowed unqualified leaders to take over leadership and with grace, not just with force, but with grace and with love, exercise strong pastoral leadership and authority and bring the church back to its biblical and gospel foundation. This is an unbelievably difficult task. And to this point, Paul had told Timothy exactly what to do. He had made it clear who the false teachers were. And he had given Timothy instructions on how to lovingly proclaim the word of God and to apply gracious but judicial church discipline. But now Paul focuses attention on Timothy himself. And he does so in order to encourage him and exhort him. And in these two verses, Paul is going to encourage Timothy to go all in, to, to sell all the way out for the mission that he was, he was called to. Now, this expression that I use here to sell out, I want you to realize for some people I've come to understand has some negative connotations. In fact, I've had someone express as much to me once before when I talked about us selling out for the mission of Christ. Uh, but let me just explain to you how I, I normally use this expression, what I mean by what I say when I say to sell out. You see, in, in football, we encourage our players to give they're very best in practice and in the game. And when we do so, we use, it, we use the term sell out. Right? And what we mean by this is, is we, we're telling them that they need to hold nothing back, that they are to give everything that they have, everything that they have to the task at hand, whether it's going to be making a tackle or making a block, or even if it's, it's doing the sprints they need to do during conditioning, Right, there's the time. If kids are going to hold things back to have something in reserve, it's going to be conditioning because they're trying to, to get to the end. We can encourage them to, in every rep, to sell all the way out, to, to give all they have and then give some more. What we're saying is to push yourself to the very limit and beyond, to dig within yourself and find within yourself hidden courage that you didn't know existed. When we say to sell out, we're saying that you are to give you were to negotiate with your body and give it, make it give more than what you thought was possible. Find the limits of where you think you can go and then push past that. Don't leave anything in reserve. Don't hold anything back. Give all that you have. That is what we're saying when we say sell out. Sell out means sell out for the task. Sell out for your team. Sell out for your family. Sell out for your community. Give all that you have. 
That's what I mean when I use that term. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy to do in this text. He's telling Timothy now that you know what to do, sell out and give all that you have for the task that is at hand. In fact, I want you to notice the verbs in this text. The verbs here stand out clear as day. The outline of this text actually centers on the verbs. It's really the, the most you're going to get out of the notes today is, is the verbs because that's the focus. Number one, the first verb that we encounter is flee. Right? Paul says, flee these things. And what I want you to realize is that the verb that he uses and the tense that he uses carries with it an intensity about it. He's saying, run. Run like you're running from a pursuing enemy. Flee. For your life is in essence what he's, what he's saying. That's how he's using that verb. The second verb that he uses is just as intense. It's the verb pursue. Paul's not, not only says flee something, but per- pursue something else. In other words, you, mean to, you need to run after something. Right? You need to chase after it with all that you have. The word betrays the idea of a hunter chasing down his, his quarry. It's to chase something with dogged determination. Again, the verb has an intensity about it. And then the third verb is fight. That one should stand alone, but the root of this word is agonizomai, which is from the word, is is, is from that word we get our English word agony or to agonize. Paul is saying to fight or to struggle or to compete with all that you have, right? So that you can have something. And then the fourth verb that we will look at. He says to take hold of something. Now, it's two words for us, but in the Greek, it's one word. And this expression in English seems a bit tame because it means simply to to grab hold of something. But in the Greek, it means to seize something with, with great intensity. In fact, this word oftentimes means to grab a hold of something with violence. It's to grab a hold of something with power and to not let it go. These are the verbs that Paul is using to encourage Timothy to complete his calling. These verbs, as we will see, betray urgency, intensity, and commitment. These verbs communicate a desperate struggle that requires that Timothy gives all that he has. You see, what hangs in the balance for Timothy is not just simply denominational distinctives. I think we can sit here 2,000 years later and be very cavalier about this, but understand what's in the balance for him is not denominational distinctives. What hangs in the balance for the work that he's doing is life and death. Eternity hangs in the balance. An eternity either in the presence of God or an eternity in hell. The thing that we often overlook when it comes to to bringing reformation back to the church, is that Timothy is in the fight for the lives of those people in Ephesus. Timothy is in a fight for the survival of that local church. Timothy is committed to the bone to the task because the stakes are incredibly, incredibly high. That is why Paul is telling Timothy to sell out to not give in to the pressure around him to complete the job. And this is why he uses the the language that he does, getting the church on track and keeping the church on track is a matter of life and death. It's not simply a matter of denominational preference here. This is why this letter is so powerful. It's also why this letter is so beneficial for us, those of us who seek to live on mission in this postmodern world a world that doesn't even recognize objective standards of truth. We live at a time where the stakes could not be higher. You realize right now, billions of people live today who every day stand at the precipice, at the edge of eternity. The vast majority of those people don't know Christ. And let's not delude ourselves. Let's not kid ourselves. If they step off into eternity without Christ, what do they step off into? Into his wrath and his judgment and eternal torment. We're now more than ever at a place where the local church is the hope of the world. And where we are called, all of us, to sell out for the mission that we've been called to. 
to go and make disciples of all the nations. And so this text I want you to know absolutely is for Timothy, but there is something in it for us. And so turn with me to, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll begin looking at verse 11. And Paul writes to Timothy, he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. So to this point in chapter 6, Paul's been addressing the issue of false teachers. But now he turns his attention directly to Timothy. And, he, and notice the expression he uses, Timothy, to Timothy. He says, O man of God. I want you to understand, this is not a generic description. This is not some just flowery words that he's using here. He's not saying this of somebody who has Christian faith. This expression, O man of God, is not simply because Timothy's a pastor. He's using this term deliberately in order to help Timothy to see the gravity of the calling to which he's been called. Because this expression has been used throughout the, the Old Testament of men in the past who have stood at an important historical crossroads and who were commissioned by God Himself to accomplish vital, important tasks along the path of redemption. Men like Moses... It's hard to understate the importance of a man like Moses. He was commissioned by God to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt and to be the pattern of the future Christ. In Deuteronomy 33.1 we read, This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. Moses is often referred to in the Old Testament as the man of God by the title Man of God. Also along with the prophet Samuel. In, in Samuel uh, chapter 9, beginning of verse 6, we read, But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in the city, and he is a man who, who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps we can, uh, he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go... What can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Samuel was the prophetic leader of Israel just after the time of the judges, before the time of the king. He was called Men of God, but then so was David after him. Second Chronicles 8.14 reads, According to the ruling of David, his father, he appointed divisions of the priests for their service and the Levites for their offices of praise and ministry before the priests as the duty of each day required and the gatekeepers in their divisions at each gate. For so David, the man of God, had commanded. And again, Elijah and she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? And then Elisha, and she said to her husband, behold, I know that this is a holy man of God. You see, Paul doesn't use this expression willy-nilly. He doesn't say things without intention. He's not using this as a generic expression. He's using this as an expression to, in order to connect Timothy to the various heroes of the faith and the mission that they were called to. Paul, in essence, is expressing the gravity of what lay ahead for Timothy and the divine responsibility that comes with it. This is why he's going to call Timothy to sell out. Now, with that being said, as a side note, over the centuries, this expression, man of God, has become used of those who are elders and pastors in the church. And oftentimes, people will address pastors and elders as man of God. Many, especially in the IFB movement, the Independent Fundamentalist Baptist Circles, will refer to pastors by this title, and, and, uh, and they do so to build up the authority that the pastors have. In fact, I've even heard some pastors in their church refer to themselves as the man of God. Now, I just want you to hear me. I personally do not like this practice. I do not like it at all. Pastors and elders already have authority invested in them to lead the church because of the office that the Bible invests in them. They don't need a fancy title, okay? For me, the, the, the title pastor is quite good enough, right? In fact, you just call me Sherman, that's good enough, 
right? Because pastor expresses clearly what it is that I was called to do and the authority by which I do it, right? Secondly, I don't think that it's appropriate for any pastor to welcome the implication of being numbered among the faithful like Moses, David, and Elijah. I'm telling you, especially we American pastors standing here in our comfortable buildings, living in a comfortable house, driving our comfortable vehicles. Right? The, the men of God of old, are, they have gigantic shoes that I would, I, would, I would dread to try to fill and presume that somehow, someway, we could keep company with the Apostle Paul and Timothy. I think it's hubris. I think it's hubris for us to embrace such a lofty notion or title. Number three, I do think that pastoring First Baptist Church of Boron is just as important as pastoring First Baptist Church of Ephesus, right? But I acknowledge that the ministry that, that Timothy had at that time has greater historical and biblical significance. That's why his story's in the Bible. And because of this, I would say that pastors need to not be quick to embrace this label, man of God, the way that Paul uses it here in this, this context. I think genuine humility, I think genuine humility is the order of the day, not to mention, right, knowing me as well as I know me, right? I am what I am by the grace of God. That is it. And I would never, ever, ever want anyone to use that title for me. Now with that, I would encourage every pastor and every person who's in Christ to embrace what Paul what tells Timothy or the exhortation he gives. Paul says, but as for you, men of God, flee these things. This is the first action verb that Paul uses here, by the way. It is to flee these things. Now what things is Paul talking about when he says these things? Well, Paul had just talked about false teachers and, and the different doctrines that they teach along with their rejection of orthodoxy and their conceit. And he also talked about their unhealthy cravings for controversy and their greed that drives them to do what they do. And Paul tells Timothy to flee these things. Now, this word flee here from the Greek, again, conveys the idea of running from something dangerous. It means to escape. And the idea that Paul is communicating here is that Timothy is to quickly and furiously get as far away from these things as possible to turn his back on these things and run. Run for his life. Which then for me, when I read this text, it raises an interesting question. Why? Why must Paul use such deliberate and aggressive language here with, with Timothy of all people? I mean, Timothy's a pastor for crying out loud. He's a Christian. He's personally trained by Paul. He already knows that those things that Paul just referred to are bad. He knows that they're dangerous. He knows that they're destructive. He knows that he ought to avoid false teaching and greed. So why is Paul so intensely commanding Timothy to flee these things? Well, probably the same reason why he uses the same expression in the letter to the Corinthian, to, to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. Not walk away, not fight. Flee, run for your life. And then further on in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Again, not just, hey, avoid idolatry. Not just, hey, just tolerate it. He says, run from it, flee from it. Paul uses his language to remind his readers in Timothy of the dangerous and insidious nature of sin. And the reason why he does this is because we live in a fallen, broken world filled full of fallen, broken people, and the effects of that fallenness and brokenness are everywhere because sin is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. Its effects are on everything. We are surrounded by sin and its effects. You cannot escape it in this world right now. And because of that, it is very easy for us to become desensitized to it. I mean, you just think about what we tolerate today and back up 30 years, you will see we are very desensitized to it. It is easy almost to become aware of, the, of, of sin and its presence because it's, it's just everywhere. It's, it's like air. And because of that, it's easy to overlook the devastating consequences of sin and the devastating consequences of false teaching. Don't believe me? 
then why is there so much false teaching in our country today? It's really easy for us not to take it seriously. We just pass it off as a different opinion. We're accustomed to its presence. There are two things that all Christians should be deeply concerned about. Number one is that, that, that the American church is, has a tolerance for false teaching, and the American church has a, has a tolerance for sin. Let's just be honest with ourselves. Why does the prosperity gospel, a, a gospel that is so patently false, a gospel that's so patently self-centered, a gospel that is so patently exalting man over God, how does that continue to flourish? Or how about the doctrine of easy believism? That somehow, some way, that if you were like eight years old, you make a profession of faith, right? But then you live like a demon the rest of your life. That somehow, some way, that little thing that you, that prayer you prayed back in like VBS, somehow you got your ticket punched and you're going to heaven forever no matter what. How does that kind of teaching flourish in a country like ours? And I'm not even talking about the outright heresies of those who would deny the triune nature of Christ, I mean, of God. Those who would deny the divinity of Christ. Those who would even deny the, 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 the uh, physical nature of the resurrection. I'm talking about the stuff that gets passed in our culture as mainstream Christianity, the stuff that's promoted at conferences and in bookstores in America today. There are people who just think that because a book is in a Christian bookstore that somehow, some way it must be biblical. Let me just tell you, one of the most dangerous places a Christian can go is a Christian bookstore. And I'm not being facetious here. Because the people who, who run Christian bookstores aren't Christians. And they're not there to edify you. They're there to make money. And the books they're going to sell are the ones that are most popular and the ones that sell. And I'm going to tell you the vast majority of the ones that sell aren't biblical. This is why so much false teaching is allowed to pass off for Christianity in America today. We've just grown used to it. We've grown tolerant of it. It's everywhere. We're not taught to flee from it. In fact, in our pluralistic society, we're taught to be very tolerant of it. Come on, it's just a difference of opinion. Why can't we have more unity? I know people who still, who I, I've known people who, I'm not being facetious, okay? Hear me. I've known people who have sat here under my preaching, listening to me, and then when they don't come, they will sit and they will listen to Joel Osteen. Right? And I'm like, how in the world does that even make sense? How do you, right? And then they'll say, hey, you know what? There's only two people I listen to you. You and Joel Osteen, as if that's a compliment to me. I mean, that actually hurts my feelings, right? I'm like, how do you listen to have your best life now and then listen to me and think that there's even a remote connection to where, we, where we're standing? But a lot of people think that's what Christianity is. We need to see this false teaching not simply as a difference of opinion, but as a danger that is to be fleed from. We need to see false teaching as something that doesn't lead to just a different road, but it leads in its end to death. We need to see and urge each other to flee from false teaching. The reason why you come to Christ is not to live your best life now. It's not. The reason why you come to God is because the life that you live now is short and one day you're gonna stand before him and you will face him and he will judge you and how you lived your life today. And guess what? It's not gonna go well for you because you are a sinner. And the only hope that you're gonna have is that you put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life in your place and who died on the cross to make atonement for your sin. That's the hope that you have. It's it. And by the way, if your best life is now, then you better start worrying because the next life's going to last forever and it's not going to be the best one. You want to live your best life then. We must become intolerant of false teaching. And we must see it for the danger that it is. We must call it for what it is. And we must flee from it and encourage others to do the same thing. False teaching should become so foreign to us that it should cause us to 
to shudder. And we must be the same way about sin. And, and let's admit that too. We as Christians have become very tolerant. And we have a high sin tolerance. I mean, we tolerate lies and lust and violence. I mean, think about this. The most radically, and here's the thing. I want you to hear me. I don't care what your political leanings are, but hear me. The most radically pro-abortion administration in the history of all of mankind is now in the executive branch of our government. Our government right now stands to set to fund abortions with taxpayer money, something that all parties were against before, but now is radically moving towards not just giving more access to it, but funding it through the government. And this is made possible because, because Christians reasoned this way. Well, we have to be more than single-issue voters, as if this is not important enough. The Holocaust that has happened since 1972 is not important enough. Right? That voters voted for this administration simply because of their hatred of the other candidate. Right? It's, it's called cutting your nose off to spite your face. And I don't care. I don't have any political ambitions. And I really don't even like all the choices we have. I believe that the reason why we have the choices we have is because we're a nation under the judgment of God because of these things. But we are willing to endorse and endure sin for political expediency. We've become tolerant of the sin of abortion to the point we even refuse to call it what it is. Many Christians will call it reproductive health care rather than infanticide, because it's what it is. It is murder. It's the deliberate killing of unborn children. But many Christians are just simply not okay with that. Many people are tolerant also of sexual sin, more than you actually think. In fact, you don't, if you don't believe me, remember the movie Fifty Shades of Grey. The movie was about an illicit sexual relationship, right? And there were a group of women from this very community who were excited, who were looking forward to getting together and watching this movie as a girl's night out. And I'm gonna tell you, many among them were Christian women. Christian women who would actually like invite each other in church to go and watch this movie together. That's how comfortable we are with the sin that's in our country. Why would, why would Christians deliberately fill their minds full of that trash? Because we're tolerant of it. Because we've become tolerant of sin. We don't see it as the inherent danger that it is. That's why we tolerate our children living with someone. That's why we will tolerate our adolescent children being sexually active and not getting married. I'm not saying when they're adults you beat them up, but you gotta call them out and tell them, say, hey, I just want you to know, you're not living right with the Lord. Because we don't see them. The problem is for us, we don't see them as standing on the, the edge of the abyss. This is why Paul says, flee, run for your life from sexual immorality, from false teaching, from all the things that lead from death. That's why Joseph, I mean, what a great example for us is Joseph. You remember in Genesis chapter 39, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, if you remember that. And he lands on his feet, becoming a servant in Potiphar's house. Very powerful man in, in another powerful man's house. And it says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Which means he's good looking, right? And after a time, his wife's master cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. If you need somebody to explain that to you, then talk to someone else, okay? But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. He then, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as, and as she spoke, she spoke to Joseph day by day. He would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, 
when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled to go out of the house. This should be our attitude towards sin. He literally fled from sexual sin. Now, there was physical danger that resulted because she accused him of rape and he went to prison. But he knew the spiritual danger that comes with that, the corrupting, the soul-corrupting danger that, that sin posed. We need to flee from sin like him. We need to become intolerant of sin. We need to become uncomfortable with flirting at work. There's this American obsession that thinks that, hey, I can flirt and it's okay. I can say little cutesy things that doesn't mean anything. I want you to realize that, that affairs never start with, hey, I like you, let's go do something. It starts off with a little conversation, a little flirting here and there, a little bit of you know, internet time, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Next thing you're having a meal, the next thing you know, it's gone. And everybody says, well, we never thought it would go this far. We need to become uncomfortable with the flirting at work. We need to become terrified by pornography. We need to become unsettled by sin around us. And those who seem so cavalier about sin, we need to take, we need to flee like Timothy from greed and sin and false teaching by running for our lives. But as we run from something, we also need to run toward something. Because notice what Paul says. He says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Paul not only says to flee from something, but he says to run toward something. He's to pursue something. And the verb that Paul uses here has the same energy as flee. The word literally means to aggressively chase, like a, like a hunter pursuing a catch. It means to doggedly pursue something. And so on the one hand, Timothy is to flee and run away from something, but at the same time, he's to run toward something, which, by the way, is exactly the way the Christian life is supposed to work. If you remember Mark in chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, he reminds us of what Jesus said. It says, in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, he says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus began his ministry preaching the good news and saying that the kingdom is here. It is available. It is here now. Salvation is available. The way into the kingdom is through repentance and faith. Jesus says to repent and believe. What is repentance? It is a turning away from something, turning our back on something. It is a turning away from sin. What is faith? It is a turning towards God It is a turning towards Christ. The Christian life is about turning away from one thing and turning towards something else. It's about leaving behind the old life that you once lived, the the life that you were dead in your sins and trespasses, and following Christ in the newness of life. It's running away from something and running toward your Savior. This is the same pattern that Paul uses here. Timothy, he tells him to flee from from the activities of false teaching And he calls him to pursue a life worthy of his calling. He says, pursue, chase after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now, this is not not an uncommon list for Paul. He uses similar kinds of lists like this in in various letters. But I want you to notice that he arranges these things purposefully, and he breaks them down into really three linked pairs. You have righteousness and godliness, faith and love, and steadfastness and gentleness. They're arranged that way for a reason. He has paired them together for a reason. In fact, notice righteousness and godliness. Both of these have at their roots, what? Right action, right? Paul is saying, pursue right action, live rightly, but to do so towards both men and God. You see, righteousness here is the horizontal dimension. Your righteousness is about doing right by your fellow man, right? Being good to them, loving them. But then godliness is God-likeness. That's the horizontal dimension. This is about living right 
with, with God. Paul is saying is pursue a life where you are seeking to be right with God and man. To live out the commandments of God's word. And then notice the expression faith and love. These are the characteristics of the life that we are to pursue. A life of faith towards God. A life of faith dependent upon Christ. And a life of love that overflows out of that towards mankind. We are to live in relationship with God in a way that's manifested in our love for other people. And remember, our love for other people isn't just the people we really like. It is for all other people. As we're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves, one another as Christians, as Christ loved us. And even if we had any question about who else we needed to love, he just said, hey, how about everybody else, including your enemies? And then he says we're to pursue, pursue steadfastness and gentleness. Steadfastness means persistence. It means to never give up or to never quit. But we are to pursue a life of faith and love and righteousness and godliness with this dogged persistence, but we're to do so with gentleness. This is the contrasting point that makes Christians completely different than the rest of the world because it's easy to be zealous and mean. It is easy to be on fire and, and be a jerk. Notice all the action verbs that Paul uses here, betray intensity and strength. But Paul contrasts us with gentleness. The truth is we must be committed to the bone with respect to the mission of Christ, but we must, and be, we must become intolerant of sin. And we must passionately pursue Christ, but we must do so with the greatest humility and respect and gentleness. And I say that because it almost seems like people think that, there's, that Christians live in one of two worlds. Either you're telling the truth, but you're a big jerk, or you're loving, but you just don't have the backbone to stand up for the truth. We are called to live right there, just as Jesus did, full of grace and truth. That we are passionate, we are strong, we don't quit, we do not bend, but we do so in a way that is loving and gracious and kind and meets people where they are. This is an important mark of the Christian life where all of our zeal and all of our passion and all our strength we're to take great care to walk in love and in gentleness towards other people. This is why we're to remind each other all the time of what our mission is. What is it that we're called to do? What is it the basic thing that Christians are supposed to do? We're to sow the seed. We're to love the people. Pray that God changes their hearts and then never give up on them. Right? We understand that the gospel, as Paul says, is the power of God for salvation. We know that it is the power. We're not. And so our job is to proclaim it and we do so with gentleness and with great love, right? And then we, then we love these people, letting them see the changed heart that we have, letting them see the gracious nature of our Savior. And then we pray for God to do the part that only he can do is to change your hearts. You can't change anyone's heart. Only God can do that. And then we, then we wait and we continue on sowing the seed. Why? Because you never know when, when God changes their hearts and when they're ready to receive it. Some people, it'll take all the way up to the moment of their death, like the thief on the cross. Others, it might take six or seven months. We never judge the effectiveness of the seed by what we see initially. God is the one who gives the increase. We walk in faith in that. This is the life that Paul has calling Timothy to, a life of right action before God, a life marked by faith and love, a life of persistence and gentleness, and then he, and, and he says to chase after this, these things, to pursue them doggedly, to be all in for this part of his life. And then he says, fight the good fight of faith. Now I'm gonna tell you right now, verse 12, for a lot of years really, was, really puzzled me because the word fight means to struggle or to toil or to agonize or to compete with great intensity. I mean, it means basically to give all that you have in, in battle or in competition. And I understand that. I mean, I get that, right? But Paul says, fight the good fight of faith, which we know is Christianity. But he says, the fight of faith. And that was perplexing to me for a long time because isn't faith simply just believing? Isn't, isn't faith simply just hearing the gospel and then trusting in what you hear? 
I mean, is not, is not faith simply just resting on the promises of God? I mean, it's what I've been told, right? It seems strange to me in that context that, that, that he would say, fight the fight of faith. But then I realized in, in this context that Paul is not talking about someone's personal saving faith. He's not saying fight to have saving faith. That's not what he's talking about. He is not talking about a person. He's not talking about a person, but, a, but, about, a, but a Christian faith as a creed. He's not talking about your personal faith. He's talking about the Christian faith as a collection of, of doctrines and beliefs that make up the Christian faith. He's talking about Orthodox Christianity, which is what we talked about before. If you remember in, in um, chapter 1, Paul said, this charge I must that I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And we talked about the fact that that faith that they made shipwreck of was not somehow they were believers and suddenly stopped being believers. Right? They were false believers. The, the, the faith that they made shipwreck of was their their confession, their Christian faith that they once said they believed that they have walked away from, the orthodox teachings and doctrines of that faith. And again, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And again, denying the faith, they're not denying like the, the saving faith they had. They did not, they're denying the truth, the Christian faith the doctrines that make up the faith. And again, that's what Paul is saying here, is that a person who doesn't take care of his family is not a Christian because of his actions. He denies the very faith that he professes, which, which is not very popular, right, in pluralistic society. Paul is really, in essence, saying, fight for doctrinal purity. Fight for the doctrines and the foundational beliefs of our faith. Fight for right theology. And again, in our country, it's almost a taboo subject for some, for some people. It's not a very popular idea, even amongst Christians. You'll even hear people who call themselves Christians recite tropes like, well, you know, Christ unites and doctrines divide. How many of you heard that before? I've heard it many, many times. Or, or how about this? I don't need no creed but Christ. Or how about this? I don't need theology, just give me Jesus. They, they sound good. They're little bumper sticker sayings that make you feel all spiritual and stuff. But the problem is, is, is they really don't lead anywhere. There are people even in this community right now who are asking the question, why can't we just have more unity? Why can't we have unity? Why can't all the churches just get together and, and have unity and get along? Brothers and sisters, I want you to hear me very, very clearly. There's only one place, and one place only, we can have unity. And that's on the essentials of our faith. On the essential doctrines of Christianity. That's the only place where we can have true unity. If someone denies the deity of Christ, we cannot be unified with them. We can't hold them as brothers in Christ. If someone denies the physical resurrection of Christ, we cannot have unity. If someone denies that scripture is theonostos, or in other words, is the very breath of God himself. We cannot have unity. If someone denies the triune nature of God, there is no unity. If someone denies the doctrine of hell, there is no basis for the gospel, which means there is no unity. If someone says that you were saved by anything else other than by grace through faith in Christ alone, we just simply cannot have unity. We can be good friends. We can do things in the community together. We can, we can, you know, we can coach alongside each other. We can work alongside each other. We can love each other and, and help each other do remodels on their houses and, and love each other as friends, but we can't have Christian unity. Why? Because they're not of the faith. They're not Christians. We cannot be unified with them. We are to stand up and fight and contend for the orthodox doctrines that make up the historical Christian faith, the only faith that saves. We're to categorically reject false teaching, like the prosperity gospel, like 
the little God's doctrine, like the notion that one day we will be God if we work hard enough, like the notion that Christ is all three, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or then we're to reject the notion of a cosmological Christ that is different from the incarnate Christ. By the way, that is the new hot button pseudo-Christian thing that a lot of Christians are falling for. This idea that, you know, that, that Christ is bigger than just the man Christ, that there was a cosmological Christ that's behind it all, that created it all, but that Christ that we worship is a different Christ. Paul just said Timothy to flee from false teachers and false teaching. He sent, he spent his entire letter exhorting Timothy to put an end to false teaching and to discipline false teachers. And now he says, fight the good fight of faith. And he's telling them to do battle in defense of the doctrines and the theology that make up the Christian faith, which means there is to be no unity when there is not the essentials to be unified over. Now, I say that to say, let's praise the Lord that there are many with whom we have denominational differences, but we are still unified with them as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we embrace them as Christians. I think very clearly a couple examples would be our brothers and sisters at the Boron Bible Church, right? Our brothers and sisters at the Assembly of God Church. There are some theological differences, and I'm going to stand to say that there are some differences I think are really, really important. Very important to me, especially from a man who, who holds fast to Reformed theology. There are some important differences, but not enough for us to be divided over. Not enough for us to, to deny each other the communion of the saints. We all confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. We confess the virgin birth. We confess the Bible is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. We all confess that Jesus was fully God and fully man when he was conceived, and we all affirm the Trinity, and we all affirm that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and we agree on all these essential doctrines, and as such, we stand as one body, not many. But if any deny these things or teach a different doctrine, we can't be unified. And this is why we must defend the faith. This is what Paul is telling Timothy. This is what it means to fight the fight of faith. We as Christians think we're supposed to fight everybody over everything, and it's just not the truth. Our job is not to fight everybody over everything. Our job is not to be involved in every possible thing. Our job is to stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ and to defend that with all that we have. The orthodox doctrines, the apostolic teachings that come down through, to us through the scriptures are the foundation on which the church itself is built. And it's from that foundation the church holds up the, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we are to fight for that. This is, by the way, is why you'll hear me say theology matters. Because it does. Doctrine matters. And so we also must fight the good fight. And then Paul says, take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And this, is, this part of the text was also very perplexing to me for a long time. It was because this expression, take hold, which literally means to grab hold of with force. It's not a hate like just grab a hold of it like you know, just grasp it. It is like forcefully, intensely grab a hold of something. Actually, with violence, grab a hold of something. It's the idea of grabbing hold of something so hard that you can never, ever let it go. And Paul is saying you need to do that with eternal life. Timothy is to grab hold of, of eternal life with intensity. Now, we know because of our understanding of the gospel, Paul is not telling Timothy that he needs to grab a hold of eternal life as if he didn't already possess eternal life right? Because we know, as far as a person can know, that he was saved, and he was secure in his salvation. We know that Timothy was saved. We know that Paul knew that Timothy was saved. In fact, Paul is the one who led Timothy to Christ and then discipled him. And so we know that Timothy belongs to God, and we also know that Timothy or anybody else, nobody is going to save themselves by grabbing onto anything by their own power, because salvation is not the work of any man, but of God himself. Timothy, like the rest of us, was saved by grace through faith. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, the same city, by the way, 
Beginning in verse 8, he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Timothy is not saved by grabbing a hold of anything. He is saved by grace and by God's call, as Paul tells him, to grab a hold of the eternal life to which you were called. He was called, which reminds us of Romans chapter 8. It's one of my favorite verses, beginning in verse 28. And we know, we have confidence, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. By the way, if that's one verse that's worth memorizing for dark times, that's it. But there's more to it. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also, what? Called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Salvation, as we have said over and over again, is the work of God. And so we know that Paul is not talking about Timothy's potential salvation. Timothy has already been saved. He already possesses eternal life. So then what does Paul mean then when he says, take hold of eternal life, the eternal life that he's been called to? What Paul simply means is this, Timothy, sell out. That's what he means. Give all that you have, Timothy. Because you already have the prize. You already possess it. You already have eternal life. You already have the greatest thing that you can possibly have. He's saying grab a hold of it. Not because he doesn't possess it. He's saying grab a hold of it now and use it. You see, eternal life is not something that is made for just the future. It is also made for us for today. Eternal life isn't something that begins some point in the future, it began the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. What does John 3.16 say? Everybody gets this really confused because they want to overplay the whole like general notion of this, right? But they're missing something, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that, who, that whoever, what? Believes in Him shall, will, will, will have eternal life. And that have, the, that, that verb is present tense which means the moment you believe, the moment you come to faith in Christ, you possess, you have in that moment eternal life. It began the day you put your faith in Christ. This is also the reason why we say you can't lose eternal life, right? Because if you put your faith in Christ, you have eternal life. If it's eternal, then it, goes, it lasts forever. If you can lose it, then it wasn't eternal. It was temporal. Paul is telling Timothy, that your eternal life is the engine that should drive the things that you do. Eternal life doesn't begin in the future. It began the moment you believe. And that truth ought to compel you to live boldly on mission for God now. Why? Because you have a hope and a future that cannot be shaken. Brothers and sisters, is there anything in this life that you have right now that you're holding on to in this world? It can be taken from you. All the money that you have saved up, your retirement can be taken from you. The house that you live in can be burned down. All your family members and all that you love at some point will step across eternity and you will lose them all. You can lose friendships. You can lose possessions. You can even lose your faculties to even do things. I mean, think about all the people we love who are slowly losing their ability to do for themselves, even think or even to recognize people. You can lose it all, but your hope that you have in Christ, the future that you have in Christ is the one thing that you cannot lose. It is the one guarantee that you can bet on. You have a glorious future that is yours no matter, no matter what life throws at you. That's the basis of what Paul says a little further in Romans as he offers us the calling. He offers us the assurance. He says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect. It is, it is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or the Taliban. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Think about our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan when you hear that. No, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now Paul is not talking about living your best life now in Romans chapter 8. I promise you. Paul is talking about our enduring hope that those of us who are in Christ have a life, have a future, have an eternity that cannot be taken from us no matter what happens in this world. Paul is telling Timothy to grab hold of eternal life here and now and live as, as if you will never die because guess what? You will never die. They may kill your body, but they can never extinguish your eternal hope because your hope rests on the faithfulness of Christ who promised to deliver you safely home. The Christ who lived the perfect, righteous life, fulfilling the law that you couldn't fulfill, upholding the covenant you couldn't uphold, securing for you a righteous perfection that you could never in your wildest dreams earn, but a perfection that you need to be reconciled to God. The same Christ who willingly went to the cross and endured the wrath of God in your place so that you could have your sins washed away the Christ who has already died in your place, the Christ who has been resurrected, who is the living proof of your hope that you too one day will be resurrected, the Christ who sits right now at the right hand of the Father who knows you and right now in this moment is interceding for you. This is what Paul is telling Timothy. He is saying, sell out, Timothy. Sell all the way out for the cause of Christ because you already have everything that you will ever need. You have eternal life. Grab hold of that truth. Grab a hold of that reality and give everything you have to this calling because of that truth. Because you cannot fail. The greatest problem that you will ever face has already been solved. You realize that if you're in Christ, the greatest crisis that you will ever face has been solved. The wrath of God that once held over your head is now washed away. Christ drank the entire cup all the way down. When he said it's finished, he meant it. The greatest question about your purpose has been answered. What the meaning of your life is? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's your purpose. That's the meaning of your life. And God has loved you and bestowed upon you by his grace, eternal life. Now grab a hold of it and sell all the way out for it on mission. This is the exhortation that Paul has for Timothy. And it's the ex exhortation that we have, he has for us as well. So many of us Christians live as if our eternal life is just this kind of like nebulous idea off, way off in the future somewhere. When we all get to heaven, right? That's why we, I mean... We don't think immediately, right? Nobody thinks like tomorrow. And, we, and, we're, and what we're doing is just simply just kind of waiting around, living our life, waiting for that day to happen. I got my ticket. I got my fire insurance. And, that, and we, we live as if the point of life is to basically kind of like keep our nose clean and stay out of trouble, right? And that we're to live you know, kind of like as to the best of our ability, the, the most pain-free, problem-free life we can, you know, make sure that we have all the resources we need to not be too inconvenienced, got our spare tire, you know, got a little extra money in the bank. We put our faith in Christ and now our eternity is secure. Now we, we look and we live like, like the, th the greatest thing we can live for is the American dream. The greatest thing that we can live for is to be comfortable 
and just kind of live here waiting around for Jesus to come back so we can all go home and be with him. Glory, hallelujah. That is not the fate of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. That is not what they've been living for. That's not what they're dying for. Paul would exhort us to say, no, grab a hold of that eternal life and use it today. Live as if you cannot fail. Live as if you will never die because in Christ you cannot fail and you will never die because you will live forever. Live as if someone who is not waiting for eternity but as someone who is racing toward eternity. Live completely sold out and on mission for Christ because, because, you have, because you've been promised something that cannot ever be erased or taken from you. Run as if the prize is worthy of all that you have. The future hope that we have in Christ empowers us to live boldly on mission for Christ today. The only question I would leave you with is, is this. What could it possibly be in your life that would stop you from selling out for Christ? Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.